Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Russia claiming victory in the biggest battle of the Ukraine war after nearly two months of siege, despite defenders still holding out inside a giant steel plant. The world's best tennis player Novak Djokovic slams Wimbledon's decision to ban Russian and Belarusian players. He calls the move crazy. The U.S. Capitol is evacuated after miscommunication over a nearby Army parachute demonstration. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi slams the Federal Aviation Administration. And a new document on the Wuhan lab. An agreement between it and a U.S. facility shows it's allowed to have its secret files deleted, all with a little help from its partner lab at the University of Texas. Russia claims it has fully captured the Black Sea port city of Mariupol, but more than 2,000 Ukrainian troops are still entrenched at a steel plant in the city. Now the question is, what will Russia do with them? NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. Russian President Vladimir Putin Thursday called off plans to storm the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol where the last remaining Ukrainian forces in the city are holed up. I consider the proposed storming of the industrial zone unnecessary. I order you to cancel it. Putin says he wants to block the area off instead, saying it's better to save the lives of Russian soldiers and wait while the Ukrainian forces run out of supplies. Putin called on the Ukrainian fighters to lay down their arms. Capturing Mariupol is a central part of Moscow's plans to cut Ukraine off from the Sea of Azov and forge a land bridge connecting Russian-annexed Crimea to Russia. Russia's defense minister said the city is also symbolic, calling it the de facto headquarters of the Azov Battalion, which has neo-Nazi elements which Moscow has promised to destroy. Meanwhile, dozens of civilians in Mariupol lined up Wednesday to get on buses to evacuate. Retiree Tamara says she and her family are going to stay with her sister. We need a break after the shelling, after all this nightmare. We've been hiding in basements for 30 days. Another evacuee says she wants to go to her son's house and that he's been waiting for her. Mom, where are you coming? He asks. I have a son there, a daughter-in-law and a granddaughter. I bought a ticket there just before the war. And then on the 24th, it all began. Mariupol's mayor has left the city, but he says about 100,000 civilians are still there. Authorities say those still living there have been without power, heat and supplies for weeks. The Kremlin said Thursday it's still waiting for Ukraine's response to Russia's latest written proposal in peace talks. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Wednesday he hasn't seen it. The Kremlin questioned why it didn't get to Zelensky. Earlier this month, Putin said talks had come to a dead end. Ukraine's chief negotiator said Tuesday it was hard to predict when talks might resume. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. President Joe Biden announced an additional $800 million in military aid to Ukraine. This as the war enters what Biden is calling a critical window. Today, I'm announcing another $800 million to further augment Ukraine's ability to fight in the east in the Donbass region. This package includes heavy artillery weapons, dozens of howitzers, and 144,000 rounds of ammunition to go with those howitzers. Biden cautioned that Congress will need to approve additional assistance if the U.S. is to keep up its financial support. He said the assistance would go directly to the front lines of freedom. The new military plan builds on the $2.6 billion in military aid that Biden had already approved. The president also announced that the U.S. will provide an extra $500 million in direct economic assistance to the Ukrainian government. This brings the total U.S. economic support for Ukraine to $1 billion since the war started. Biden also stressed the expansion of sanctions against Moscow, saying all ships with ties to Russia will be barred from U.S. ports. The president announced the new aid hours after Russian President Vladimir Putin claimed victory in the city of Mariupol. After seeing people flee Ukraine, an Irish gentleman decided to take action. He's now providing a home for refugees in a medieval castle. Barry Hoggian is the owner of a 15th century castle in West Ireland. Seeing the situation Ukrainian refugees were facing, he decided to offer up a place to live in his fortified second home. 
And we started planning and, and we thought, okay, if you plan this, you're not going to do it. So just go ahead and do it. <laughs> Hoggian flew to Poland to meet 11 refugees there, buying them tickets to Ireland and helping them with immigration paperwork. He helped to do uh, all papers uh, for our life in Ireland. He helped with accommodation, with uh, school for my children, uh, with transport. Hoggian lives in Spain, but is staying in the four-story castle with his wife and two teenage children for now. We were emotional wrecks for probably more than a week. We, we did, I mean, self-included, we, we weren't sure what we were doing and just trying to make things better for them. So now, every week it gets better. A month after arriving, five of the 11 have found jobs. The children are in school and are adjusting quickly by making new friends. Uh, Irish people are very fr uh, friendly, very kind. Uh, all uh, people want uh, to help us. Uh, very good. I very uh, like, very happy to be here. I have a good job, uh, good uh, home where I live. Locals have been supportive and helped by donating food and appliances. I really like this country. I'm very like nature every time. Green grass, uh, many flowers, um, sometimes rain. <laughs> the 11 are among 23,000 Ukrainian refugees who have so far arrived in Ireland. The government expects four times that number and plans to house them in conference centers or sports halls. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Millions of Ukrainian refugees are settling in countries across Europe. Over 20,000 have arrived in Ireland, and locals are stepping up efforts to help them improve their English language skills. Let's take a look. This school in South County Dublin is one of over 100 locations across Ireland offering in-person English lessons to newly arrived Ukrainian refugees. This woman from the Donbas region in eastern Ukraine fled the war there a year ago. I'm studying English because I want to integrate into the Irish community and to be able to socialize. In general, I'm a very talkative person and I feel lonely when I can't explain myself or even say thank you for what people are doing for me. Government figures show that around 23,000 Ukrainian refugees have already arrived in Ireland. The figure is expected to rise to 40,000 by the end of April, but less than half are believed to speak fluent English. So that's a barrier for them to integrate into Irish society. This 16-year-old boy from Lviv arrived in Ireland with his mother and two sisters in early March. We're really thankful that people are making everything good for us here, but I still miss my home, especially because my father is still there and he's in the army. But we are trying to build a new life. I'm going to school. The school has both Irish and Ukrainian teachers. The government has fast-tracked enrollment of Ukrainian teachers into the education system to meet the growing demand. Demand for English classes is set to grow exponentially in the coming months and years. A volunteer teacher says that the social aspect of the classes is just as important as teaching language skills. So uh, obviously a lot of people coming from Ukraine uh, mightn't have any English or mightn't know anyone in Ireland, uh, might come here on their own or feel isolated once they're, once they're in accommodation. So. Um, the classes, as well as offering practical language skills, maybe it's a way for them to meet other people in a similar situation. They can build up their, their own support networks. And when English language classes are over, the school serves the refugees tea, coffee and cakes supplied by the local community. And many local Irish families are hosting Ukrainian refugees. World number one tennis player Novak Djokovic said Wimbledon's decision to ban Russian and Belarusian players over Moscow's invasion of Ukraine is crazy. I will always condemn war. I will never support war, being myself a child of war. I know how much emotional trauma it leaves. Us here in Serbia, we all know well what was happening in 1999. In the Balkans, we have had many wars in recent history. Ordinary people always suffer most. However, I cannot support the decision of Wimbledon. I think it is crazy. Players, tennis players, athletes, they have nothing to do with it. So when politics interferes with sport, it doesn't turn out well. Wimbledon announced the ban on Wednesday. It's the first tennis tournament to ban individual competitors from the two countries. Djokovic grew up in war-torn Serbia. He made his comments against the Wimbledon decision at the Serbia Open in Belgrade. The decision has been criticized by the ATP and WTA tours 
The move is the first time players have been banned on the grounds of nationality since the immediate post-World War II era when German and Japanese players were excluded. The All England Lawn Tennis Club said it would consider and respond accordingly if circumstances change between now and before play begins in June. And coming up, workers at an Atlanta Apple store push to unionize. If successful, it would make them the first U.S. Apple store to do so. And Netflix shares lose over a third of their value on Wednesday after the company reported its first drop in subscribers in a decade. We'll have more for you on that here in NTD News. A group of over 300 pilots and flight attendants is calling for the removal of the federal government's mask mandate. The crew members are from 16 airlines in 35 states. The group filed a brief with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. They're urging the court to declare that the mask rule on transit is permanently illegal. Their filing says the TSA cannot issue health directives that have nothing to do with transportation security. The group also says that aircraft cabins with high levels of air filtration pose a low risk of spreading COVID-19. On Monday, a federal judge in Florida struck down the CDC's mask rule on public transportation. The Justice Department has challenged that ruling. The U.S. Capitol was evacuated after a military parachute demonstration at a baseball game triggered a security alert. Miscommunication led police to think an attack could take place. It seems Capitol Police were unaware of the demonstration and thought the plane dropping the parachutist was a threat to the Capitol. The demonstration was actually part of a military appreciation event hosted by the Washington Nationals baseball team. The U.S. Army Golden Knights gave details about the event to an air traffic control tower at Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport. Air traffic control alerted at least one commercial flight, but at 6.30 p.m., Capitol Police sent out an alert that read, Evacuate now. Aircraft intrusion. People at or near the Capitol were pushed back past the office buildings on Capitol Square. Twenty minutes later, they said there was no threat. The Federal Aviation Authority said it will review the incident. The Army is also investigating. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called the error outrageous and inexcusable. The Supreme Court revisited its 56-year-old precedent, Miranda v. Arizona, at a hearing on Wednesday. It's about the extent to which the decision protects criminal defendants. They also argued over whether it provides a basis for post-trial litigation by acquitted defendants. They're trying to decide whether a defendant can file a civil rights lawsuit based only on a failure to provide warnings. That's in situations where the arresting officer doesn't provide the warnings that are required by the decision. The petition is from a case where law enforcement officer Carlos Vega arrested Terrence Teco in 2014. Carlos suspected that Teco had sexually assaulted a patient at a Los Angeles medical facility where he worked, but a criminal court jury acquitted Teco. Teco then sued Vega, noting that he failed to provide a Miranda warning to Teco before he offered what he later called a false confession. Critics have long decried Miranda as a judicial invention outside the U.S. Constitution, but the late conservative Chief Justice William Rehnquist upheld Miranda. Former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin has opened her campaign headquarters in a bid to return to politics. She's running for Alaska's open U.S. House seat. Palin was also a vice presidential candidate in 2008. I mean, we're going to just, you know, stick with the issues and stick with the plans that we have for Alaska, this wonderful state, the most wonderful state. And I have had the privilege over these, well, the last couple decades, really, traveling around the country, traveling around the world in the last 13 years, promoting Alaska, doing all that I can to get our natural resources developed responsibly and helping educate the rest of the country, the rest of the world, about what Alaska has to offer because we're the Fort Knox of our great union. The office is located at the site of former President Donald Trump's Alaska headquarters. Here, Palin supporters can sign up as volunteers, make donations, and pick up yard signs. Palin is among 48 candidates running for the same House seat following the death last month of Republican Congressman Don Young, who held the job for 49 years. The winner of a special primary will advance to an August special election and serve the remainder of Young's term. 
Palin was Alaska's governor in 2008 when John McCain was running for president and selected her to be his running mate. They lost the election and Palin returned to Alaska, but resigned as governor with 16 months left in her term. She attributed it to records requests and ethics complaints she said were frivolous. A California lawmaker's push to impose harsher penalties on fentanyl traffickers fails. The bill would have reclassified fentanyl as a drug along the lines of heroin and cocaine. Under the proposal, traffickers would have faced 20 years to life in prison for fentanyl distribution of two grams or more, resulting in death. Current state law enforces longer prison sentencing for selling heroin and cocaine in or nearby a facility that serves children. The failed bill would have added fentanyl to the list. The legislation would have also imposed penalties for selling fentanyl on social media. Multiple public speakers spoke in favor of imposing harsher penalties, including those who have lost loved ones to the drug. But those in opposition insisted the issue is about failed drug policy and want to solve it using a different approach. The Assembly Committee chair says he opposed the bill because the state is looking to build a task force that will come up with a comprehensive plan to address the crisis. An Apple store in Atlanta, Georgia, could be the company's first in the U.S. to unionize. Workers there on Wednesday filed a petition to hold a union election, riding the momentum of efforts at other major corporations like Starbucks and Amazon. I mean, there is no doubt that what we are seeing right now is an historic moment. Wilma Liebman was chairman of the National Labor Relations Board under the Obama administration. I think they have a inside movement called Apple II, T-O-O. Um, so I, I, I think filing actually for an election is to some extent the a logical next step. Apple's workers at Cumberland Mall are hoping to join the Communication Workers of America. That union, which backs the workers' effort, said that of the more than 100 workers eligible to join in sales, technical, creative, and operations roles, over 70 percent signed cards expressing their desire to organize. A spokesperson for the National Labor Relations Board confirmed the agency's Atlanta office received the union petition on Wednesday. If certain conditions are met, the NLRB will work with the union and the employer to arrange an election. Apple did not immediately respond to requests for comment. A new study by Surfshark shows that most people don't actually know what big tech companies do with their private data. On this topic, we hear from Jane Hoffman, who is a senior fellow at Harvard University and the author of Your Data, Their Billions. She describes how much of an impact these companies are having on people's lives by gathering their data. There's no, probably no one in your life who knows as much about you as big tech. Nobody knows where you are every minute of the day, what medications you take, what you're buying, what you're searching for, not your mother, not your spouse, not your best friend. But big tech knows, and it uses that knowledge to propel its profits. So it's buying and selling your data, and that's why it's making trillions, that's 12 zeros, trillions of dollars. So let's take Google, for example. I mean, some people say it's so commonly used, it's not a service, but it's a way of life. They collect personal information like payment information, email addresses. How can they use that information and is it a detriment to users? Well, what I propose is that like an NPR or a PBS of Google, I call it Google. So that way none of your information would be bought and sold. Every time you use Google, they're selling information on what you're searching. So a data broker buys it, it happens in nanoseconds and somebody else sells it. So if you're looking to buy rain boots, that's being sold to tons of producers of rain boots. And then they know algorithmically, oh, she's buying rain boots. She might be buying something else that's associated with rain boots. So there's predictive behavior analytics. There's algorithms at stake. And it's your personal information. But Jane, if you like rain boots, wouldn't that be an advantage? Because then it would just pop right up. You could think of it as an advantage. But it's also an invasion of your privacy. Uh, What I'm afraid of is that privacy is becoming a luxury good so that you can only buy privacy in the future. And maybe a 15-year-old's concept of privacy might be very different than my concept of privacy because they're curating a visual history that's, you know, showing the perfect life. But privacy is something else. Privacy are things you don't want shared. 
Well, big tech platforms often have a checkbox that you check in order to subscribe to their privacy agreement. So would you say that they're not doing anything wrong? Well, you might check it off, but if you don't check accept cookies, which is what I think you're referring to, you lose some functionality. But if you can check off not accepting cookies, then your data won't be sold. The U.S. is really behind on Internet and data regulation. Europe is way ahead of us, and that's because the big tech companies are located in the U.S., and they have lobbying power and political might that they don't have in Europe. So speaking of cookies, how can people protect themselves from this type of data gathering? Well, there are a couple things you can do. You can have a VPN, which is a virtual private network that you pay monthly for. You can use search engines that protect your data, like DuckDuckGo. So there are things you can do. Also, it's really important if you have passwords that they shouldn't be a word. It shouldn't be your best friend or your dog's name. It shouldn't be a birthday. It should be something that you can't find in the alphabet because the algorithm can go through every word in the dictionary. So it should be like CZY8FN. It shouldn't be a word, a password. Netflix shares lost over a third of their value after the company reported its first drop in subscribers in a decade. It's left Wall Street questioning the company's growth in the face of fierce competition and post-pandemic viewer fatigue. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. The stock has been a solid performer over the past few years, but competition is finally catching up with the streaming giant. Ten years of fabulous growth at Netflix um, has uh, finally uh, hit a wall. I think the rest of the uh, content industry uh, has responded to Netflix having disrupted the business so thoroughly over the last 10 years. In an effort to calm nerves, company executives told analysts on Tuesday they were looking to offer an advertisement-based tier over the next year or two and promised a crackdown on password sharing, a long-running problem for the service. Netflix's rivals already have ad-driven versions or are considering one. HBO Max offers an ad-supported subscription, while Disney Plus recently said it would launch an ad-based tier. Well, streaming has become a much more competitive space um, really since Disney Plus launched about two and a half years ago. Since then, we've had uh, Discovery launch its own service, Paramount launch its own service, um, and others. So it really, for all the traditional um, network groups, it's all about their own streaming services. Demand for fresh and engaging content is also increasing, forcing Netflix and others to think about bigger budgets for production, even as costs increase in an inflationary environment. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A jury acquitted an Ohio doctor in the deaths of multiple hospital patients. Dr. William Husel was accused of ordering excessive painkillers for 14 of his patients. He was indicted in cases involving at least 500 micrograms of the powerful painkiller fentanyl. Prosecutors said ordering such doses for a non-surgical situation indicated an intent to end lives. Husel's attorneys argued during the weeks-long trial that Husel was only practicing comfort care for his patients. Husel would have faced a sentence of life in prison with parole eligibility in 15 years had he been convicted of a single count of murder. A 51-year-old woman whose body was found in a duffel bag in Queens had been stabbed numerous times, according to an autopsy. A medical examiner's report showed Orsolia Gall died of multiple sharp force injuries to her neck. Her death was ruled a homicide. Gall's body was found inside a duffel bag in Kew Gardens beneath the Jackie Robinson Parkway just after 8 a.m. on Saturday. That's when a passerby noticed blood leaking from the bag. Police said more of the victim's blood was found about a half a mile away inside her home on Juno Street. Police say they believe Gall was killed in the basement of that building before her body was dumped in Forest Park. No arrests have been made. A California man who spent more than three decades behind bars for a murder he did not commit walked out of prison Wednesday. Now age 61, Joaquin Saria was arrested in 1990 and convicted of a shooting death in San Francisco. His conviction was based on false witness testimony and police misconduct. Saria's case marked the first exoneration by the District Attorney's Innocence Commission. That commission was established by a San Francisco district attorney in 2020 to review potential wrongful conviction cases. 
owners of a Texas seafood restaurant may face charges after nearly 30 pounds of shark fins were found inside a freezer. In 2015, Texas banned the trade of shark fins. The law was put into effect to help crush the trade that officials blame for harming the shark population. Authorities seized the fins and will use them as evidence. A criminal case is pending against the unnamed restaurant owners. Produce sold at Walmart in over a dozen states is being recalled due to contamination concerns. The FDA announced World Variety Produce is recalling a case lot of organic zucchini. The vegetables have potentially been contaminated with salmonella, an organism that can cause serious and sometimes deadly infections. The FDA says no illnesses have been reported. The two-count packs of zucchini were sold under the brand Organic Marketside at Walmarts in 18 states. The FDA says customers who bought the product should not eat it. They should destroy or dispose it. General Electric is recalling some of its refrigerators because of a fall risk. The company says a loose handle could detach when the consumer pulls on it to open the freezer, causing the person to fall. GE says it has received 71 reports of freezer drawer handles detaching so far, and at least 37 people were hurt, three with serious injuries. The recall includes six models sold between February 2020 and January 2022. They all have French doors with a bottom freezer. Those with impacted appliances should contact GE for repair. Coming up, the state of New Mexico has announced a fine for the production company of the movie Rust. That's in connection with the fatal shooting on the movie set last year. And a zero emissions ferry powered by hydrogen cells will soon hit San Francisco Bay. Is this a sign of change for ocean travel? All that and more coming up on NTD News. New Mexico on Wednesday issued a fine of nearly $137,000 against the production company behind the movie Rust. That's for safety lapses leading to what the state called the avoidable fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins last year. In a statement, the New Mexico Environment Department said an investigation by the state's Occupational Health Bureau found the production company knew firearm safety procedures were not being followed and demonstrated plain indifference to the hazards. Rust Movie Productions said it disagrees with the findings and plans to appeal, according to a spokesman. The company previously said it was not aware of lapses in set safety during filming. Hutchins was killed in October when a revolver actor and producer Alec Baldwin was rehearsing with fired a live round that hit her and movie director Joel Souza, who was injured but survived. Baldwin has denied responsibility for Hutchins' death and said live rounds should never have been allowed onto the set. The six-month probe found the movie company did not launch investigations into crew members' complaints about firearm safety, following three accidental discharges of weapons and pyrotechnics on set. The Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office and Santa Fe County District Attorney are conducting ongoing criminal investigations into the fatality. The San Francisco Bay will soon have a new zero-emissions ferry floating in its waters, It's propelled completely by hydrogen fuel cells, and officials hope it's a sign of change to come on the high seas. It's the first vessel, uh, first commercial vessel in the world that's got that that propulsion system. Pace Crowley, chief executive of Switch Maritime, said he conceived of the idea for the one-of-a-kind ferry, aptly named Sea Change, while living in New York City, trying to find ways to decarbonize the maritime industry. Uh, I was actually riding a ferry between Manhattan and Brooklyn. I was living in Brooklyn at the time and really thought that uh, this could be a fit for, um, for this new technology, for decarbonized technology. The 70-foot ferry will service multiple stops along San Francisco's waterfront. Built at All-American Marine Shipyard in Bellingham, Washington, Sea Change is undergoing tests with the U.S. Coast Guard in nearby Puget Sound. Officials hope it is a harbinger of the changes to come on the high seas. In the engine room, three hydrogen fuel cell stacks whir away while helping power two propellers that move the ferry along at a top speed of 20 knots. The system is automated so that when it needs power, it starts up the fuel cells. All-American Marine Project Manager Jeff Sokolik stands at the helm of the sea change, pressing buttons on a touchscreen 
that engage automated systems communicating with the engine room. This is going to be the next standard, is fuel cell driven vessels. They're clean, they're efficient, and they make sense economically. Advocates say hydrogen fuel cells are cleaner than other carbon cutting methods as they only emit water and heat, but the technology has only seen limited usage in many industries on concerns about high costs and the bulky size of fuel cell systems. But it could help the industry move towards a zero emission future as it struggles to hit sustainability targets. You know, the shipping industry uses on average around 300 million tons a year of carbon intensive fuels. Um, the impacts of that I think are you know, pretty well known. Uh, about a, a shipping industry emits on average about a billion tons of CO2 and other greenhouse gases a year. Rally believes the sea change could be a game changer. We can use this technology on all sorts of vessels. This also helps prove that hydrogen-based fuels can work in maritime. And I think that's a really big sort of factor for, um, uh, for other ship owners to get comfortable adopting this technology and, uh, and, and investing in it. If all goes to plan, Rally says the boat will be delivered to the Bay Area in late May and will be serving passengers by June. Pittsburgh company Astrobotic unveiled a lunar lander named Peregrine. It's set to be the first U.S. lunar lander to touch down on the moon since the Apollo missions nearly 50 years ago. Its unveiling is a sign of Peregrine's state of readiness as it moves closer to its launch date, which is scheduled for the fourth quarter of this year. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said Peregrine will play a major role in the return to the moon. This is very important because their next one that's going in 23 is going to be us landing on the south pole of the moon where the resources are, where water is. And if we have water, we have rocket fuel. Peregrine's unveiling took place at Astrobotics headquarters, a 50,000-square-foot state-of-the-art facility dedicated to developing and operating lunar spacecraft. And still to come, one man's trash is another man's treasure. A professor has a unique way of finding out about life in North Korea. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. The Wuhan Institute of Virology is allowed to have a U.S. lab that it partners with destroy secret files. That's according to an agreement uncovered from a Freedom of Information Act request. Those files include data stemming from all of the lab's collaborative work together. The legal document is a memo of understanding of cooperation. It's between the Wuhan lab and the Galveston National Laboratory at the University of Texas Medical Branch. The agreement means either of the two labs can have the other delete secret files at the other's request. The memo states, the party is entitled to ask the other to destroy and or return the secret files, materials, and equipment without any backups. The nonprofit investigative research group called U.S. Right to Know discovered the information. The memo aims to promote research and training cooperation between the two labs. They signed it back in 2017 and is in effect until October, but according to the agreement, the terms remain binding even after it expires. The document effectively states that all documents and data are subject to a request to delete them. The Wuhan lab came back into the spotlight when the pandemic started amid growing speculation that the virus may have leaked from it. The lab denies that claim, but Beijing hasn't let anyone investigate. That has prevented any meaningful probe into the theory. The Wuhan lab and the Galveston National Laboratory partnered up to streamline their work on dangerous pathogens. That's according to a joint announcement in the journal Science. But experts say the memo about removing data raises an alarm. They say it could potentially mean the labs broke the law. For example, Reuben Gutman, a partner at Gutman, Bushner & Brooks, told Right to Know, the clause is quite frankly explosive. Anytime I see a public entity, I would be very concerned about destroying records. The Galveston National Lab partnered with the Wuhan Lab in 2013. The Texas Lab's former director had made multiple trips to the Chinese lab over the years. And the Galveston Lab was among the first in the world to get samples of the virus from the CDC. That was about three weeks after the director told his Chinese counterparts to share the material. 
The memo appears to contradict what scientists at the Chinese lab said. They said they would never scrub critical research information. One virologist there said allegations that her lab would do that are baseless and appalling. A university professor has an unusual method of gaining insight into the living conditions of North Koreans. He collects garbage washed up on the shores of nearby islands. On these beaches in South Korean territory, one man's garbage is another man's treasure. Kong Dong-won is a university professor studying North Korea. He's decided to get his hands dirty in order to continue his research. Others call this North Korean trash, but I call it a treasure. He says the litter provides useful data to learn about life for people in North Korea, a place closed to most outsiders. Kim can't draw their support if he only suppresses and controls them while sticking to a nuclear development program. He would need to show what is changing in his era. The academic researcher has gathered around 2,000 pieces of trash, mostly snack bags, juice containers and candy wrappers. His job has become more difficult due to the CCP virus. He is now unable to visit China's border towns because of pandemic restrictions limiting foreigners. Kong used to make regular visits to China to talk to North Koreans staying there. The North Korean debris shows a surprising amount of colorful diversity. Some appear to be imitations of Japanese and South Korean products. When the wind blows and the waves are high, something always washed ashore, and I was so happy because I could find something new among them. Ingredients on some packages list tree leaves instead of sugar, suggesting that North Korea lacks sugar and sugar processing equipment. Some cleaning products are marketed as the friend of housewives or accommodating women, which implies only women do such work. Kong says this could reflect the low status of women in a male-dominated North Korean society. Some rappers have false assertions about nutrition value, a snack cake advertised as a better source of protein than meat. Another cake made with microalgae claims to prevent diabetes, heart disease, and aging. Kong recently published a book titled Picking Up North Korean Trash on the Five West Sea Islands. The book documents his experiences and findings. He plans to comb South Korea's east coastlines in the near future. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Still to come, Argentinians try to get by as the country reports March inflation at nearly 7%, the highest in 20 years. And everyday workers are feeling the pressure. All that and more coming up in just a minute. France's presidential runoff election is this weekend. Voters narrowed the field from 12 contenders two weeks ago. Now only French President Emmanuel Macron and challenger Marine Le Pen remain. Here's more on that story. French President Emmanuel Macron and challenger Marine Le Pen locked horns on Wednesday in a high-stakes election debate. They're only one before Sunday's presidential election. The angry face-offs saw them spar over the war in Ukraine specifically Le Pen's links to Russia, as well as the economy, the idea of a hijab ban and the European Union. Macron's strongest line of attack against his rival was her past admiration of Russian President Vladimir Putin and a loan for her 2017 campaign contracted through a Russian bank. You depend on the Russian power. You depend on Mr. Putin. A few months after saying that, Madame Le Pen, you took out a loan from a Russian bank in 2015. First Czech Russian bank. Le Pen rejected the accusations. He knows very well that I am a completely free and independent woman. For Le Pen, who lags Macron in voter surveys by as much as 56 to 44, the debate was a chance to persuade voters she has the stature to be president. Le Pen has toned down her once staunchly anti-EU rhetoric as part of a bid to broaden her electoral appeal. She pledged to give money back to millions of French made poorer during Macron's five-year presidency. Voters will be reckoning with two opposing visions of France. Macron offers a pro-European liberal platform, while Le Pen's nationalist manifesto is founded on deep Euroscepticism. A snap poll conducted for the BFM TV channel showed that 59% of respondents found Macron the more convincing of the two. However, Macron's lead in opinion polls is much narrower than five years ago, when he beat Le Pen 
with 66.1% of the vote. Argentina reported the highest inflation figure in two decades last month, a whopping 6.7%. It's led to sky-high prices for basic goods. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Jose Luis Rodriguez is a bricklayer in Argentina, but he can't get by on his paycheck anymore, as spiraling food and fuel prices dent the value of salaries and savings. Money doesn't get you by nowadays. The reality is that it doesn't buy you anything. If I get sick, I don't know who is going to feed my family. Argentina has been battling high inflation for years with little success. The problem has worsened as global commodities prices have climbed over the last year. It all came to a head recently, given the war in Ukraine. Inflation is forcing those of us who work in different sectors to make these kind of big sales. We need to leave our areas of work in which we are comfortable. Sometimes we have no choice, but if we're lucky to have two or even three jobs, and not even then do we make ends meet, because one day products have a certain price, and the next day it's a different one. People around South America have been hit sparking protests against rising prices in Peru and long lines for food and fuel in Cuba. Central banks have been forced to sharply hike interest rates, a trend that is expected to continue. Inflation has taken an especially steep toll on Argentines, almost 40% of whom already live in poverty, even as a rebound in growth from the pandemic has helped reduce that number. Property in Argentina is quite serious. We've had structural problems for more than 20 years. In this context, the effects of the economic and health crisis caused by the pandemic have hit the country. And a third very serious element in Argentina is inflation, an indiscriminate increase in prices. That means families' incomes can't make up for the lost earning power. The government of Latin America's third largest economy sealed an agreement with the International Monetary Fund in March to reschedule some $44 billion in debt. The deal comes with economic targets, including bringing down inflation. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Peruvian authorities found 1.5 tons of marijuana inside a house in the country's capital, Lima. During the bust, three members of a small drug dealing clan were arrested. Interior Minister Alfonso Chavarri said the marijuana came from Colombia through Ecuador. Authorities say Peruvian police have carried out over 4,400 operations so far in 2022. Police detained almost 1,000 people, dismantled 25 criminal organizations, and seized 17 tons of drugs. The Mexican Army seized 1.7 tons of cocaine on April 14th. That's after a high-speed chase off the coast of Mexico. Security footage captured the chase at sea, about 270 nautical miles southeast of Port City, Manzanillo. Mexican officials detected a small vessel with three outboard motors. Four crew members were seen throwing drug packages into the sea, while a Navy helicopter was flying over the speedboat. Four suspects were taken into custody and faced charges linked to drug smuggling. Mexico's army seized 1.2 tons of cocaine in early April after a high-speed chase near Puerto Vallarta. One suspect was taken into custody and is facing charges linked to drug smuggling. And still to come, an area in northwestern Spain finally receives credit for its spectacular wines. For the first time, a vineyard in the area has obtained 100 Parker points awarded by the wine advocate. And Global Nature Restoration Organization Rewild announced plans to protect and restore nearly 250,000 acres of land by 2030, a large part of the effort to fight climate change. All that and more in just a moment. After years under the radar, a region in northwestern Spain is finally receiving credit for its spectacular wines. The unique products are produced in especially steep conditions. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Ribera Sacra is one of the five renowned wine regions in Galicia, in the northwest of Spain. Despite breathtaking views, gastronomy, history, and art, the area gets little attention. 
The Ribera Sacra vineyards are planted on the steep slopes of the valleys and canyons of the rivers Seal and Minya, and acquired official denominación de origen status in 1996, which stimulated viticulture and trade. Little by little, in recent decades, Ribera Sacra has been positioning itself in terms of the global market as a super authentic region. Why is that? Because each visitor who arrives and sees the environment, sees the landscape, gets to know its people, its tradition, its history, is absolutely hooked. Very few areas worldwide still have a vineyard as spectacular as this one. For the first time, a vineyard in the area has obtained 100 Parker points, awarded by wine review publication, The Wine Advocate. An expert echoes a similar message. Swan Congas is the director of the Galician Wine Institute and conducts professional sommelier training courses. He believes that this region has all the parameters for climbing to the top of the market. He says isolation and a great Atlantic influence make these wines particularly authentic. This, together with the typology of soils based on slate, as in this area that we have here today, and on granite in other areas of the Ribera Sacra, make the wines have an identity, a marked personality of their own, well marked, where grape varieties also play a very important role. Regina Viarum is one of the most visited bodegas in northwest Spain. Here, they merge tradition with innovation with help from modern technology. Our Regina Viarum Mencia, it's not 100% fermented in stainless steel tanks, which would be a 100% typical wine from here. We ferment part of it in a truncated cone um, barrels or <laughs> in French. The U.S. and U.K. are the main importers of Galician wines. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Global nature restoration organization Rewild, supported by Leonardo DiCaprio, has announced major new ambitions. It plans to help protect and restore nearly 250,000 acres of land by 2030. The group is working with Yves Saint Laurent Beauty in Morocco, Haiti, Madagascar, and Indonesia, where the company sources ingredients for its cosmetics. The areas we're focusing on with Yves Saint Laurent Beauty are, are areas where they source natural ingredients, but they also overlap with priorities that we've identified. So biodiversity hotspots, so Haiti, Madagascar, Sulawesi, are all places that we, we have partners, places where we work. The mission also seeks to highlight the importance of natural restoration in fighting climate change. If we protect and restore the most biodiverse places, it, it's a third of the solution to the climate crisis. And I think we're often not sort of recognizing that when we talk about solutions. We talk about cutting emissions, but we don't talk about kind of our, our, our living, growing, breathing air conditioning system that is biodiversity. YSL Beauty's announcement comes just ahead of Earth Day on Friday, April 22nd. Kathleen Rogers, president of EarthDay.org, highlighted the urgency to restore the environment. We're even more heavily invested now in educating people about voting or about um, consumer choices, but we are equally impatient and need governments and corporations to get it together and take charge because that's really their business, if you will. The United Nations says the world must restore at least 2.4 billion acres of degraded land, an area of the size of China, in the next decade. While the World Wildlife Foundation says about two-thirds of the world's animals, mammals, birds, fish, amphibians, and reptiles have vanished over the last 50 years. So that's a lot of land. And a billion hectares is a thousand times as much. So this is a lot of land, and we welcome people, organizations, companies, governments, cities that want to be part of this, and there's a lot of them that answer this call. YSL Beauty's partnership with Rewild will see the cosmetic giant fund the restoration of an area 10 times the size of Paris. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Passengers on a hot air balloon flight in Melbourne had a lucky escape. On its maiden flight, their airship crash-landed into an apartment complex. The accident occurred early Wednesday morning, local time, in the southern suburb of Elwood. The ride was arranged by Liberty Balloon Flights. There were a total of 12 passengers on board. 
Local media reports say the pilot had difficulty making the hot air balloon lift off properly due to a malfunction he could not explain. An eyewitness video by one of the passengers captured the frightening moment as passengers crouched down, narrowly missing power lines as the balloon descended. A passenger said panic set in as the pilot told them to brace for impact. Fortunately, no one was injured in the emergency descent. The Australian Transport Safety Bureau said it will carry out an investigation into the cause of the crash. The iconic Parks Elvis Festival is back in Australia after a two-year hiatus. The special day marks a celebration of the life and music of Elvis Presley, the late king of rock and roll. Parks is a rural town in New South Wales, Australia, about 200 miles west of Sydney. The Elvis Festival is the biggest event of the year in the town and one of the top three festivals in the country. It's held annually in the second week of January to coincide with the King's birthday on January 8th. But it was canceled in 2021 due to COVID-19 and was postponed to April of this year. Wig-wearing Elvis impersonators and fans rejoice over the event, and business owners are also happy to have tourists back. This is the town's 29th year of hosting the event. Celebrations will run from Thursday to Sunday with more than 200 activities, including an Elvis tribute artist contest, a street parade, a renewal of vows ceremony, and many free live concerts and competitions. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on screen. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.